Hey, if you have your Bibles there at home, why don't you turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 23, and uh, you may have your device, uh, your smartphone there that you can swipe to that passage, but Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning. And while you're turning there, man, let me just say happy Easter. Uh, It is a little different, an atypical Easter, right, for... Pretty much all of us, and uh, but yet here, here's one of the things that stands out to me is that even though we are scattered, it doesn't take away, it doesn't diminish the significance of what this day represents. That we celebrate the uh, uh, the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today in a way that hopefully is going to be really, really applicable for you, and in a way that speaks into the times in which we find ourselves. As well. So, Luke chapter 23, we're going to get there in just a few moments. Hey, let me ask a question. So, when was that moment for you when all of the coronavirus crisis really hit home, when it came home to roost, when it really kind of invaded your life? When was that moment? Because I think all of us have uh, that moment, right, where where for us it, it just became real. It, it became significant, not something on the news, not something you know all over social media, but it became something that invaded our world. When was that moment for you? For some of you, maybe it was when your kids had been out of school for a couple of weeks and, uh, and you were getting a little bit tired of teaching algebra and helping your, uh, your uh, lower grade children memorize the 50 states, right? Maybe that was for you, that moment when it's like, man, this is all real. This has invaded my life. Maybe for you, it was when you went to the grocery store and you were all fired up because you were hungry and your, uh, your, your refrigerator was going empty and your cupboards were going bare and you went there looking to restock and you're excited about getting a good meal and uh, you realize the only thing left was uh, artichokes and sauerkraut and uh, maybe dark red beans for some reason. I have no idea why. I couldn't find light red kidney beans anywhere, but the dark red beans were everywhere. Maybe that was your moment when you realized, you know what, we're not going to have steak and potatoes much anymore. You know, our whole diet is going to change. Maybe that was your moment. Maybe it was when you got furloughed. And the job that you had been at for a year, two years, five, ten, maybe longer, was suddenly not a job available anymore. Maybe it was when when you got laid off. Maybe it was when your business shut down. Maybe that's when the coronavirus crisis really began to become personal. Maybe it was when that friend in another state suddenly posted their post on social media to say that they had tested positive. Maybe it was when a family member tested positive. Maybe it was when you tested positive. Maybe it was just having to be tested in the first place. And it was that, it, it was that sense of, of stress and that sense of reality that this is not something going on out there or over across an ocean somewhere. Not only has it just come here to our nation, but this has now come home to my world. Where, where was that moment for you when all of that became very personal. You know, for me, I, I've been reminded in this in this experience of a simple principle. We're going to put it up on the screen here, and I hope you'll jot this down, that hardship has a way of refining priorities, doesn't it? Hardship refines priorities. It, it seems as though hardship has this innate ability that when we go through crisis like we have over these last few weeks, or any other type of a hardship, when we go through, through hardship, what hardship does is, is it has this innate ability to strip away those things that really don't matter. And it strips away those things that are of lesser value. And what it does is, is that it brings to the surface those things that matter most. Hardship is very, very good at helping us to see the things that need to be the absolute top priority. You know, maybe for you, you've been reminded of this 
in these recent days when um uh, w- when you have have walked past uh, items uh, that used to not matter at all, right, or driven past places that you didn't even give a second thought to just a few weeks ago, and now suddenly those things are priority. I mean, how often did you walk past uh, you know the aisle where the ground beef was and didn't really stop to think that I have got to look to see if there's ground beef today, right? But in these last few weeks, suddenly that has become a priority. Hardship has brought you to that place. How often have you ever walked past the aisle, you know, and uh, and, and didn't give a second thought of looking for paper towels or tissue or toilet paper or whatever, and now suddenly hard has made those things become a priority. It has completely realigned your list of priorities in your life. You know, for me, you know, I, I don't know if I will ever in my whole entire life uh, be able to drive past a Chick-fil-A again and not just park and go in, right? Maybe every single time I go past one, it just realigns our priorities. And that's what hardship does. It realigns our priorities in small ways and in big ways. But here's another thing that that hardship does. Hardship also makes eternity seem a lot closer than it used to seem. Hardship has a way of just reminding us, and hasn't that happened over these recent days, reminding us that we are not people who are guaranteed a set amount of time, a set amount of days on this earth. Hardship reminds us of our mortality. And man, I can tell you over these last three, four weeks, as not only just our nation and our world, but we ourselves have had to do business with this virus that has just invaded our lives. We've had to come to grips with the fact that, that we are, are uh, we, we, we experience mortality. I mean, our day one day is going to come and we've had to grapple with that. We've had to do business with the simple fact we have been forced to think about eternity like we've never thought about before. And it doesn't matter whether you're a frontline person who is working in the medical profession or working in a grocery store and you're there providing food for the rest of us, or if you're just someone who's tried to isolate yourself, you have been forced and I have been forced to grapple with our mortality and with the subject of eternity like we never have before. Well, well this Sunday, today, Easter Sunday, reminds us of the, uh, of the two hinges on which the Christian faith is built. When we look at Christianity and we, when we begin to see how Scripture defines our faith as followers of Jesus, or if you're considering what it means to follow Jesus, all of the Christian faith is built on really two hinges. One is the birth of Jesus, that He came for us in the first place. We celebrate that, obviously, at Christmas. And when Jesus came that first Christmas, it was God showing up, that He, born of a virgin, came to this earth for us, and He lived a life of sinless perfection. But He didn't come just to do a bunch of miracles and impress the crowds. That wasn't His goal at all. The the reason He came was to ultimately provide Himself, His perfect life, as a sacrifice, as a substitute, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and be made right in the eyes of God. And what we find is, is that not only does Christianity hinge on the, uh, the, the, the truth that Jesus, God himself, came for us Christmas, but it also hinges on the truth that he died in our place, that he rose again. That's what we celebrate today for Easter. And what Christianity does is that it answers life's three biggest, most pressing questions that we all have to answer at some point in our lives. It answers it like no one else, like no other belief system, and it answers those three big questions with complete and total accuracy and truthfulness. Biggest question you'll ever face, perhaps number one, is where did I come from? The world still tries to 
come to a suitable conclusion to that answer. And it has a variety of answers to that question. Question number two, why am I here? Why am I even on this earth? What's my purpose? Is there a design to my reason being here? And then number three, where am I going when I die? Those are the life's big three questions. And some people deal with those questions early on and they come to, to answer them the way Scripture answers them. Others grapple with those questions their whole life and never yield to the truth of God's Word. Question number one, in simplicity, where did I come from? You came from God. Your life carries immense value. Your life carries immense meaning. That you, right where you sit, and I know you might be in your pajamas and you might be sipping on a cup of coffee or eating breakfast. I understand all that. That's perfectly fine. But understand, no matter where you've been or what you've done or how long a list of, of things that maybe create guilt and shame at times in your life, no matter how many uh, instances in your life you wish you could go back and hit a reset button and undo, those don't take away the simple fact that your life is a life of great value because you bear the fingerprints of the God who created you. Why am I here? Very simply, you're here to live your life in glory, right? To the God who created you. You don't live it to yourself. We're not here to try to get as much as we can and to hoard up all the goodies of life and to try to just have these experiences that somehow fulfill us or complete us. We are here to ultimately live life to the glory of the God who created us. That's, that's what Scripture teaches us. Well, what about that third question? Well, where am I going when I die? Let's take a look in Luke chapter 23, and let's look at another guy here in Scripture who had to deal with that question specifically himself, and he dealt with it in his own crisis moment. And when he dealt with this question of where am I going when I die, that was a question that didn't have a lot of time to be answered for him. He had to get it right, and he had to get it right quickly. And everything we're about to read in Luke 23 is completely true. Because it's God's message, it's God's so that we can answer this question in a way that's correct, in a way that's appropriate, in a way that's applicable for us as well. Let me give you some backstory before we jump into Luke chapter 23. Here in this chapter, we find the culmination of Jesus' mission. That Jesus came to earth Christmas. He came to earth to ultimately live a life of sinless perfection. By the time we get to Luke 23, He has done that perfectly. Not one time had He committed sin. Now that doesn't mean He didn't have enemies, because He had many enemies that opposed Him. And the reason for that largely was because Jesus had claimed to be God. Now for the Jews, they considered this blasphemy. For the Romans, who basically had... had uh, had control over the land of Israel at this point in time in the first century, the Romans would have perhaps seen Jesus as somewhat of a rival to some degree because they worshiped their, their emperor. They worshiped Caesar. And so he had his list of enemies because he had claimed to be God. And at this time here, at the end of the book of Luke, the end of the Gospels, what we find is that Jesus has now uh, been arrested by some of those religious leaders who had opposed him so, uh, so heatedly. They have arrested him. They have beaten him. They have mocked him. They have taken him through a series of six trials, three of those Roman, three of those Jewish. Um, all of those had problems, right? Some were just flat out illegal in nature. And the desire was to get him executed as quickly as they could for his claims to be God. By the time we get to Luke 23, we find that Jesus has already ultimately gone through that series of trials. He has been beaten, many say beyond recognition. He has already shed much blood before He even got to the cross. 
it would be so difficult for him as a 100% human, in addition to being 100% God, the human side of him would be at a point of absolute exhaustion to the point to where a Roman soldier would press into service a man named Simon from Cyrene who would have to assist and help carry the cross to a place called Golgotha. When Jesus would be led up that hill, He would be laid out more than likely horizontally as that cross would be laid on the ground, arms outstretched, one hand nailed through the wrists into that wooden Roman cross, the other hand outstretched, nailed through the wrist to that Roman rugged cross, one spike through His feet, more than likely the crown of thorns still upon His head, and that cross would have been raised dropped down into place with every bit of Jesus' body weight coming down on those three pressure points, the nails that those Romans had nailed into that cross through His body. If you had been there, if if you're one who's followed Jesus for long at all and have read Scripture much at all, there is a tendency for us to lose the weight of that moment This is not just words on a page. Had you been there, you would have had to look away. It would have been that horrendous. The Romans were very good at execution. They knew how to beat a man to the point of death, and yet not too far, so that he could still experience the pain and the agony of crucifixion. He would be, uh, the Romans would crucify in public for a reason to humiliate that person. And the body after death would typically, not in Jesus's case, but typically be left on that cross as a visual for every man, woman, and child who passed by the roadway would look and see yet another person whose life had ended on a cross, and they would be reminded, do not mess with the Roman Empire. All four Gospel writers tell us of an interesting component to Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all make mention of two others who were crucified with Jesus that day. Matthew makes mention that there was one person on Jesus' left and another on His right. Matthew makes mention specifically that they were robbers, these two men. In other words, according to the Greek language, that word that we translate as robbers would have meant that they would have been guilty of openly robbing and probably assaulting someone by force. It would be possibly likened to armed robbery or assault today. And they had been convicted, these two other men that Matthew makes mention of. Now Matthew does add one other interesting detail. He says that both of those robbers, one on the one side, one on the other, were insulting Jesus while they hung there dying for their crimes. Mark makes mention also of two robbers, one on one side, one on the other. He also makes mention that they insulted Jesus. John as well makes mention of two that were crucified on either side of Jesus. And he makes mention of Jesus specifically being in the middle. And so we have this biblical picture of three crosses on a hill with Jesus in the middle. It's there that we jump into Luke chapter 23, and let's pick up the story there, this true story, beginning in verse 32. If you have your Bible or your device, you can read along with me, or you can read along here on the screen beside me. 
Luke writes in verse 32 of chapter 23, he says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him, with Jesus. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. You see the scene there, Jesus with one criminal on one side, one on the other. Jesus, sinless, spotless, without crime, without sin, crucified in the middle. He would make this statement there between those two criminals there in verse 34, you see it, that is going to be an absolute game changer a little bit further in this story. I want you to hang on to it because hanging on that cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. What does it mean to forgive? It means to wipe the slate clean. What does it mean to forgive? It means to, to release someone from their debt. Jesus was saying as he prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them. Who's the them? The ones with the hammers, the one with the spikes, the one with the whips, the ones who had ultimately put him through this crucifixion. He says, forgive them because deep down in their heart, they don't know who I am and they don't know what they're doing. That statement is going to have a huge game-changing implication for one of the other two that were crucified with Jesus. Let's continue to go on further. Luke continues in verse, uh, verse 35. He says, "...and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one." Well, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself, as they mocked him. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. It's interesting, those three things that are mentioned there, the Roman soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothing, the mocking, the offering of sour wine, vinegar, all those were fulfillments of prophecy that have been prophesied in some cases hundreds of years before Jesus ever even came to earth. Luke continues, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Remember, uh, the other gospel writers, two of them at least, make mention that these other two criminals were insulting Jesus from the cross. And they're saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, right? He's on one side of the cross and he calls across the body of Jesus as he hangs there, still alive. He calls to the other criminal across Jesus, he says, do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, in the next verse, this criminal who had lived a life, as far as we know, of such rebellion against God and His truth and His law is going to give us one of the most beautiful gospel presentations in a nutshell. It just captures the heart and the essence of the gospel. The whole overarching message of this book, this criminal, is about to drop on us in one verse. Look at what he says in verse 41. He says, And we indeed are suffering justly. We deserve what we get. We're lawbreakers. We're criminals. <laughs> we deserve 
this suffering. We are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But you can almost imagine that he looks to Jesus and says, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's like this criminal understands that we deserve the penalty of our own sin. But this man, the man in the middle, Jesus, he is without sin. It all begins to make sense. Remember that one moment I asked the question at the beginning of this message, when was that one moment when the crisis came home to your life? Hey, for this guy, this is when it all came home. His sin, his law-breaking, his mindset and heart position, living against God, this was this guy's moment. <laughs> it's when the light bulb went off. It's when everything began to make sense. And somewhere in the mix, conviction came. Somewhere in the mix of all this, he felt in just a gnawing sense of guilt, of responsibility for what he had done, the way he'd lived his life. Somewhere in the mix of all this, he went from insulter to searcher. Look at what he says next, verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, you can almost see the tears in his eyes. I mean, he's moments from death, this guy. Remember me. <laughs> Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to you, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Not when you go back and redo all the stuff that you did wrong earlier. Not when you go back and jump through a bunch of hoops to get to me. Not when you go get baptized or join a church somewhere. Not when you go back and try to make right all the wrongs of your life. Not, not when you go back and, 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 and try to do all these good deeds that you hope will outweigh your bad deeds because it doesn't work that way. Jesus says, no, today, right not where you sit, right where you hang. <laughs> Man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you free and I'm going to cut you loose and I'm going to forgive your sin and I'm going to give you a home and I'm going to give you a relationship with the God who made you. <laughs> Hardship refines priorities, doesn't it? Hardship has a way of making eternity seem a lot closer than it ever has before. And for us in these days, man, maybe it's never felt closer. Maybe for you, you've been wrestling with, you know, I wish I had a little bit of that peace. And I'm not hanging on a cross and I don't expect to anytime soon, but I need what that guy found. <laughs> You know, the beauty of the body of Christ, of the church, is that it's filled with people who are far from perfect. But we have this one common experience that we found grace when we turned from our sin, when we owned it and confessed it and gave it back to God and asked Jesus to forgive it. We found that He was there ready and willing to accept us and to embrace us and to forgive us and to take over. If we only turned from the sin that had already messed up so much to begin with and just surrendered our lives to Jesus. But the beautiful thing about the Gospel, listen, is you don't have to be in a place called the church to be able to get in on that. 
that the same Jesus who died that day is the same Jesus who three days later rose again, conquering death, conquering the grave, conquering sin. And He's that same Jesus who stands ready to take over your life, not when you get to church, but if it was good enough for that man hanging on a cross, it certainly is good enough for you sitting in your living room or wherever you are right now to say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. And I believe that You're God and I invite You to forgive and take over even me. You know, one interesting thing to note about this true story is that with Jesus in the middle, both of those criminals had equal access to Him, didn't they? One could have come to Him just as easily as the other. One found life eternal. One found forgiveness. One found a clean heart. One found a new start. One found a blank slate that Jesus had wiped clean. And the other, for all we know, died in His sins. They both had equal access. One took Him up on the offer and trusted Christ, and the other didn't. You know, it's not much different maybe for you today that you have equal access this morning as well as I do to a life that's lived in yield, yielded surrender to the person of Jesus. And if you've already made the decision to give your life to Christ, man, you worship today. For you, it probably really doesn't matter that you're not on a church property in a church building. Yes, we wish we were together. I do as much as anybody. But you're celebrating today as much as anybody because you know what Jesus did for you. And others of you, today it can all change if you only choose to trust Him yourself as well. Remember those three big questions in life? Where did I come from? You came from God. He gave you this life you have. Oh, you still live in a fallen world that bears evidence of what sin can do. But God gave you your life and your life is valuable. Your life is a treasure. Why am I here? You're here to give glory to the God who created you as you live your life and surrender to Him. Where am I going when I die? Hey, only you can answer that question. He's done all the work that's needed. He's paid for your sin. And praise Him that He did because we couldn't do it ourselves. It's not about trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad. It doesn't work that way. He paid it in full. It is finished. And the only thing waiting is your decision of whether you're going to be like the one who needed grace and trusted Jesus or the one who chose to go it alone and missed it. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, Right there in the simplicity of this moment, I know it may be a little more awkward for you sitting in a living room, a family room with your family around, but I just ask you if you could give each other permission just to bow your heads and close your eyes right where you are. If you're driving and you're listening to this, don't do that, obviously. But most of you are probably seated at home or you're watching this on a device somewhere. Hey, in this moment, could you just think through that third question that that criminal on the cross had to do business with that day, where am I going when I die? And if you don't have that complete assurance that you know you're right with God, maybe this morning you're at a place where you're ready to, to where you're ready to put that in order. 
If that's the case, then you can pray a simple prayer after me. I'm going to walk you through it. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's not a magic lamp that we rub to get into God's good graces. It's simply a way that we demonstrate our trust in Christ alone to save us. And right where you sit, you can pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I know so clearly that I need You. And I know that I've sinned and that my sin has broken my relationship with the God who created me. I believe, Jesus, that You are God and that You died just like the Bible says for me. And that You rose again from the dead and that You live today. And today, the best that I can, I lay down my sin. I turn from it. I repent of it. And I trust You alone, Jesus, and invite You to forgive me, to wipe my heart clean, to give me a new life, that you would save me and that you would keep me. Thank you for all that you did that first Easter for me. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. God, I thank you this morning for those that perhaps prayed that prayer for the very first time. And they may not be hanging on a cross next to you. But Lord, you are still right there next to them. And you heard that prayer as they prayed, surrendering themselves to you, trusting in Jesus to forgive them. And God, we thank you that even in these, some of the hardest times we've seen, that what these days have done has been to cause us to prioritize what matters most. And what matters more than anything is where we stand with you. And what it has also done is caused us to think of eternity in a way like maybe never before. And I trust that today, for some, Lord, eternity is not something they fear now because they're ready. And it's going to be a great reward because of their relationship with Jesus. And so help us now to walk in that same faith, to enjoy the life you've given us, to know that your challenges that we face, you're going to leverage them for good because you love us and you're for us, not against us. We praise you for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.